Truth News Network. Fake news, equity, inclusion, words that are all the buzz. You do know what buzz is, right? It's noise. And that's where we're headed. A culture of noise. More concerned with the topicality of the noise than the substance of the truth. Well, we're TNN, the Truth News Network. And you're in luck. The anti-buzzmaster is in. Dan Newman. Honestly, I've never been called the buzzmaster before, but I'll take it from Pete Moss. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the first day of February. My gosh, this month, this year is getting off to a really quick start. That means we've got to be ever watchful, ever careful to make sure we don't miss any of the important things. Now, I'm talking about important things to you and to me, not necessarily what those in authority over us and the government think. They work for us. Don't forget that. Maybe they have forgotten it. I think in many ways they have. But that's the way this whole thing is supposed to structure and be operated. We're going to get back to that. Somehow we're going to get back to that. It's going to entitle and bring on a bunch of changes that are going to be uncomfortable for many, especially those who are going to be kicked to the curb and who will determine who those that are going to be kicked to the curb will be. Well, constitutionally, it's you and me, the American people. That, my friends, is still under attack. So we have so many things to uncover this morning. I looked late last night, and I had about 20 different stories already pulled out that I wanted to get into today. This morning, I added another 12. Obviously, we won't be able to cover them all, but let me give you a heads up. Probably one of the biggest is, in the run-up to last Thursday, we told you, and Steve Baker told you when he was with us last week, they were having a big press conference last Thursday in Dallas at the Dealey Plaza, downtown Dallas. That's where JFK, President John F. Kennedy, was assassinated. But there was a host of attorneys that were there, and they just laid out what their plans are regarding what the Department of Justice is doing today attacking our guy, our partner, Steve Baker, investigative journalist, for the work, the First Amendment work that he did on January 6th and the quote-unquote insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. You know the story. For three years now, the Department of Justice, about every six months, they come forward and threaten Steve Baker and tell him we're about to indict you and arrest you and bring you in. So these fleet of lawyers, several of them constitutional experts, and several of them have defended people that have come before those judges in D.C. that were arrested and prosecuted for their actions on January 6th. They've got Steve in their bullseye, does the DOJ. But you're going to hear the entire press conference. It's pretty cool. This is the real deal. You know, we play sound audio bites here of things that are happening to other people, other places. But this one, my friends, it sticks right at your front door and mine. So we'll hear that at the bottom of the first hour. Until then, we've got plenty of beef on the plate. And so we're going to jump right into it. After 
Basha does. Hello again, it's me. Your shoulders where I sit. The half nobody sees of a silent partnership.
musical sound, Basha. I can't even pronounce her last name. She's from Czechoslovakia. I've never heard a sound quite like that. That came from back in the, oh my gosh, 90s, maybe late 80s. But she writes all her songs. And they're just different enough, but they've got a good little sound to them and beat to them. So every once in a while, I like to sit back and thank you for sitting back with me and uh, starting our show today with Basha. Last name, unpronounceable. (laughs) If you weren't with us at the very top of the show, I told everybody we have in full and at the bottom of this hour, we're going to play that press conference that was held last Thursday in Dallas. It was with Steve Baker, of course. It was about what he had talked to us about several times in his Tuesday appearances here. Um, he's in the bullseye directly one more time of the Department of Justice for his investigative work that he did legally January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. And since then, he has written several revealing stories that have, beyond a shadow of a doubt, proven that two of those Capitol Police employees that testified in the Oath Keepers trial and several other ones all those guys that are in jail today, they perjured themselves in that trial, whichever one it was. And there's much more waiting to be revealed. So the DOJ is trying to shut him up. They've threatened once again to come pick him up and take him to a jail awaiting trial. They won't even tell him what the trial charges will be yet. So he's got about five of the best attorneys in the nation, each have volunteered to represent him if and when the DOJ pulls the plug. And by the way, every one of those attorneys is at this press conference you're going to hear about. So in the meantime, let's get started with some stuff, some real juicy stuff. How about this? Did you see any of that Senate hearing that was held yesterday where four or five, I think it was five, of the social media giants, people, presidents, owners, whatever, whoever they were, they were called in to testify before Congress. On what authority does Congress do this? Please understand this. They, every one of those social media giants, are owing to the American taxpayers. How's that? Well, At the beginning of Facebook, which was really the first real big one that ever broke out, Zuckerberg, they call it uh, Meta now. Meta is the parent company that owns Facebook. He was there. And at the very beginning, they started operating a social media site. Now, what happens there? When you have an open social media site where people can come post their thoughts and ideas and others can respond And you know the whole deal. Everybody knows it like the back of your hand now. There's some nastiness that typically comes up. People get in arguments. There are threats made. Sometimes some people do and say bad things, right? Well, there sometimes are actions that are taken by those people. Meta, of course, and any other social media operation doesn't have any direct input into the conflicts that arise between those that are using their social media plans. So they started getting sued. 
And Mark Zuckerberg and his staff, they came to Congress and they pled with Congress, look, we're doing this as a service to everybody so they can exercise their First Amendment rights. Yeah, right. We'll get into that in a little bit. Like, Meta doesn't mess with First Amendment rights. Anyway, they talked Congress into giving them protection against these lawsuits that would come their way for the content of what people post on their social media accounts. It's called Section 230. And all you got to do is say Section 230 and everybody in the government knows what you're talking about. It indemnifies the owners of these social media platforms against litigation simply for the content of what the posters post there. Not Meta, not Google, not any of those, TikTok and the other ones. And so Congress said, heck yeah. And so if you got a tiff with Mark Zuckerberg at Meta or Facebook, you can't sue them. Well, you can sue them, but you won't get anything from it, even a response. You may be told you can't do that. <laughs> if you got a problem with any of these guys and it ends up in something that is actually real and can be um, end up in court for being sued, you got to sue the federal government. I think it's the stupidest thing or one of the stupidest things our government has ever done. Kind of like what they've done for Big Pharma. Big Pharma. You know all these vaccines that are floating around now? Every few months they come out with another one and they do all the testing like they did with the COVID-19 vaccinations. Human trials, all that kind of stuff. But when they come to market, most of the time, the FDA hasn't yet fully approved them. So what does that mean? The FDA is a government entity. It's not directly a part of the government like one of the Treasury or the divisions of the government like that. But the FDA is regulated by the federal government. And they have to sign off on every medication whatsoever, in most cases, before it can go on the market. But then sometimes drugs are allowed to be used in the market, like the COVID drugs, while the confirmation and testing, all that kind of stuff is completed, and the final results will confirm the research that the FDA issues a temporary approval for the use of these drugs. We, the American people, indemnify Big Pharma, you can't sue them for any of these drugs that they're working on, not even finished yet, until and unless they become totally clear and confirmed and released formally for all use with the stuff, you know, this is not to be given to seven and under and that kind of stuff. But in the case of Big Pharma, guess what the government does? It's the same thing they've done with big tech. They never fully approve any of these vaccines. Do you know, listen to this, this may rock you, but every vaccine in American history, every one of them, the ones that actually went through FDA confirmation, some came out before then, before they even had it. I'm talking about the ones in modern history, probably back to 
maybe 2010, 2012, maybe even a little earlier than that. They're not fully approved. None of the vaccinations that we're taking today, there may be one or two, but I'm not familiar with them if there are. None of them have been fully approved by the federal government. You know why? Because Big Pharma comes to the government and says, we we need your help. We want to serve the people and create these wonder drugs, but we can't do it if every Tom, Dick, and Harry's going to have a toothache that he got and claim it was from our drug, and they sue us. We can't have that happen. We'll never make it. Congress said, you got it. Section 230, if anybody has a tiff with you in court, tell them to come sue Uncle Sam. I just thought you'd like to hear that. So anyway, what happened at the Senate yesterday in the biggest hearing room in the uh, Capitol? All these social media owners and directors were there to answer questions for the Senate panel. And the place was packed full. And you know who was there? Parents. Parents of multiple children whose lives have been lost because of the back and forth, the ferocious things that happen on social media between kids and these kids are murdered, even commit suicide because of that. And they're gone primarily because of these big pharma companies. So I want, I, I want to let you listen. You were working probably. You didn't get into it. Couldn't get into it. But I want you to listen just a little bit about this. What went on yesterday? Now at 1030, U.S. senators angrily accuse tech company executives of putting profits over the lives of children. The lawmakers grilled the CEOs of such companies as TikTok, Meta, and X, saying they exploit children and expose them to harm. As Jewel Hillary reports, the lawmakers are demanding that social media platforms adopt tough safety measures to keep children safe. Robert Bronstein and his wife Rose, who are from Chicago, are two of the hundreds of parents who attended today's Senate Judiciary Committee hearing focused on keeping minors safe on social media. And the room was absolutely packed, standing room only, mostly with, you know, other parents like us whose children have been victimized. During the hearing, the Bronsteins held a picture of their 15-year-old son, Nate, who took his life after bullying via text and Snapchat. There wasn't a, a single student who spoke up and said anything. During today's hearing, Republicans and Democrats interrogated the CEOs of TikTok, X, Meta, Snap, and Discord. Your product is killing people. For not doing enough to keep young people safe using their sites. The internet is dangerous. Lawmakers grilled Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg, singling him out for a lack of safety tools on Instagram. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? Zuckerberg then stood and faced families to apologize. He and other CEOs told lawmakers they are taking steps to keep minors safe. Last year, X suspended 12.4 million accounts. TikTok CEO says more can be done. But what we need to do is to make sure that we are always improving it and testing it against bad people who may try to bypass it. Senators are demanding Congress to pass legislation holding social media companies accountable. Accountability is the only way to have them change their methods, practices, 
and start protecting children and all Americans. And again, the lawmakers are calling on Congress to pass measures to make big tech more accountable. So one explosive thing that happened at the end of that, Mark Zuckerberg was challenged by a senator from Missouri who said, Mr. Zuckerberg, would you like to apologize to the parents of those kids who lost their lives directly from the influence of your social media sites? Would you like to talk to them? Would you like to apologize to them? And the crowd, it was packed. People started applauding. And Zuckerberg got up. He was shamed into getting up and turned around and gave them kind of a heartless apology for it. But see, Zuckerberg is scared to death that Congress is going to withdraw that Section 230 indemnification that protects them from litigation that comes from things that happen because of the things that are posted on his sites. Now, besides Facebook, he's got Instagram. And during that hearing yesterday, Republican Texas Senator Ted Cruz, he got all over Zuckerberg during a hearing about Instagram allegedly assisting pedophiles in gaining access and for inappropriate child sexual content. Now, Cruz referred to investigative reporting by the Wall Street Journal That's expose, and it was really powerful. It exposed that numerous pedophiles have exploited Instagram's algorithms and they've found ways to network features for predatory activities. Predatory activities. Now think about it if it was your young kid using Instagram. All of my grandchildren do right now. Hmm. Cruz also presented a printed Instagram warning screen that provides an option for people that are searching for child abuse material to look at the content on the platform and pressed the Meta CEO about it. What was particularly concerning about the Wall Street Journal expose was the degree to which Instagram's own algorithm was promoting the discoverability of victims for pedophiles seeking child abuse material. This is Senator Ted Cruz talking. In other words, this material wasn't just living on the dark corners of Instagram. Instagram was helping pedophiles find it by promoting graphic hashtags. And then Cruz He stuck the Instagram warning screen up in the air for everybody to see. These results may contain images of child sexual abuse. That's in the warning. It then gives users the option to either get resources or see results anyway. Cruz said this to Zuckerberg. Mr. Zuckerberg, what the hell were you thinking? Zuck responded that research shows it's beneficial to give these people the option to obtain help. Cruz said, I understand get resources. In what sane universe is there a link to see results anyway? Well, this is Zuck, because we might be wrong. (laughs) 
Meta told the Wall Street Journal it was exploring ways to actively defend against this behavior in a statement responding to the reporting. The company established an internal child safety task force in June, we're told, after the reporting, but it still has had bunches of difficulties resolving the issues. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, let me give you a little editorial thought on it before we move on, and we're going to move on. Why hasn't Congress ripped that 230 label of protection off for social media sites like Google, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and every other one out there, Snapchat. There, there's dozens of them, dozens of them. TikTok seems to be the one that's racing across the world. But let me get that. Let me just give you a little inside scoop. This happened to pop out last night. Did you know that the Chinese government, they're the backers. They own the parent company of TikTok, the Chinese government. Not a single phone in China can connect to TikTok. There are no shortcuts or ways to cut through and get on it. It is totally, you can't do it for every person in China. But it's all over the rest of the world, as far as I know. Maybe the Muslim world, maybe they don't allow it. I don't know. Why would China do that if TikTok's really a good social media site? Question asked. You don't have to answer. We all know the answer. It's all about the money. That's for us. That's for the probable purchase of Section 230 protection. Purchase, Dan? You don't think Mark Zuckerberg personally, meta, corporately, doesn't support political causes in the United States. Oh, and also political races for Congress in the United States. Quid pro quo. That's capitalism, they say. No, it's not. You still need to do the right thing. You still need to make certain you're not hurting anybody in things that you do through your business. That should not only be a legal thing, it's a moral thing first. You should have heard some of the stories these parents were telling about what and why their kids aren't with them anymore. And the direct ties. I mean, you can't dance around what you hear about what happened to these kids and why, what what went on. I could tell you story after story. It just breaks your heart. And it doesn't have to happen. Right now, today, our U.S. Congress, besides the Section 230, I'm I'm back and forth on that. You know, in the free market system, you think, you know, the, the First Amendment gives everybody the right to express their own opinions, even if somebody else doesn't like it. But you can take that over the edge, which is what has happened in the cases of these kids. But there's got to be a way for protection Something like every parent, let's say up to, what, 16, 17 years old, maybe 18, that has a phone or uses a phone or has a social media account, 
the parent has to sign off for permission for that kid to use that social media site on their iPhone or whatever phone they have, computer, whatever, totally. But they should always mandate that the parents have their own passwords and have unfettered total access to the websites, the social sites their kids are looking at. That would stop most of this because then if these kind of circumstances happen again, there would be justification, legal justification for them to go after TikTok and Meta, any of the others, Google, all of them. If some other incident like the ones that were being discussed yesterday happened to other kids, that would mean that the big tech companies failed on their commitment. But they don't have to worry about that in China. No, no, no. Xi Jinping's got it going on. We want to poison the minds of every kid in America, but we're not even going to give our kids here a chance to swallow that garbage and drivel that comes out. That, my friends, has been happening to your kids and their phones since TikTok came into existence. You do your thing, and you do it well. Now, it's time to do it bigger. It's time for Shopify. Shopify makes it easy to set up your online store, expand into new sales channels, and bring your brand into the real world. Get everything you need to launch your business today with Shopify. Two gang and showtime. Uh, do you know this guy? I'm not gonna cry, am I? Only if you don't believe in the power of friendship. Really? You guys are good. <laughs> movies, right when you want them. Watch unlimited movies instantly for only nine bucks a month from Netflix. That's so cute, it's stupid. Could switching to Geico really save you 15% or more on car insurance? Did the little piggy cry wee, wee, wee all the way home? Wee! Wee, wee, wee! 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 Max. Wee, wee, wee! Yeah? You're home. Oh, cool. Thanks, Mrs. A. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Infinity QX60. Take on life in style.
what's happening in New York City, it's just gotten totally out of hand. And it's not exclusively just in New York City. We know that it's happening in our big cities and even smaller cities across the nation. But the Big Apple is kind of like the big shining light that everybody looks at first, right? Well, over the weekend, two New York City police officers were attacked by five migrant teenagers, illegal immigrant teenagers, right on the west side of Times Square, 42nd Street. Now, let me, if you know anything about New York, you know where Times Square is. On the west side of Times Square, there's another big area going over towards the river on the New Jersey side. This happened a couple of blocks towards the river on 42nd Street. Surveillance footage released by the New York Police Department shows one officer and a lieutenant telling the migrants to move along about 8.30 last Saturday evening. A scuffle ensued. The officers are seen apparently trying to subdue somebody on the ground. The suspects then are seen kicking the officers before running off, before being arrested a short time later. And there's more news about this. And there's much more uproar about this. Let's get an inside education on what's going on there. How is it possible that we allow people to enter the country illegally, stay here illegally, and then beat up our police? Why Why aren't all of them on a plane back to wherever they came from? I, I don't know. I mean, I do know. It's again. I, I want to send, back send to, a message. Send a message. No this message. is not going to be okay. That you're beating up on our police officers. You're going back home. Well, it's, it's over. It's purposeful. I think this is all part of a greater plan um, to destroy our country. And I hate to be yes. so blunt to say that, but it's what the Biden administration is actively doing when they yes. let people like this. Hurt our police officers, our NYPD officers. Yeah, and these piece, right. people, by the way, the immigrants were quickly released back onto the street. Quickly released. No bail. They just let them out. What do you think these kids are going to do next? They're going to do the same thing. I don't want to get into the weeds here, but I want to point something out. You know when all this lawlessness began and how it all came together and it's still happening? It started in the aftermath of the joy. George Floyd death in Minneapolis several years ago. In the aftermath of that, everybody on the left goes up screaming, we've got to defund the police. We've got to stop these wicked cops from doing all this stuff. This is happening everywhere. We got to stop it. Well, it quickly escalated out of being several people's opinions to becoming a cause for the left. Black Lives Matter picked up on it. We had 300 riots that summer. Most of them were small, but there were some big, big ones that happened. And no good came from any of them. Of course, nobody in the Biden administration wants to talk about that. You know, the number one thing, the biggest threat that we have in the United States of America is not the fact that we had 300 riots that summer and that Black Lives Matter perpetrated and were involved, if not managing all of them. People like George Soros pulled out the checkbook, writing big checks. Then Senator Kamala Harris set up a fund for those that were arrested for the evil they perpetrated in these things, 
and they didn't have money for bail. She set up an account that everybody could donate to so these people could get out of jail that were wrongly charged and thrown in jail. I guess that was her leapfrog step to get to be the vice presidential candidate for Joe Biden, defunding the police. That was just the beginning. That whole mindset flood everywhere across our nation and people on the left and especially criminals, they saw that as a green light. To make it even worse, all of a sudden it became the big thing for district attorneys all across the nation. Many of them funded in their campaigns by George Soros. As a matter of fact, right here in Shreveport, Louisiana, of all places, 100,000 people here. George Soros funded the campaign of the now district attorney in Shreveport, Louisiana. Why would he do that? He is an anti-cop sycophant. George Soros wants the United States government to fail all the way. He's not tried to hide it for decades. That's what he's all about. And what's one of the best ways, if not the best way, to begin to make it happen and starting that downfall? Take the teeth out of what local police officers are able to do in stopping lawlessness. So here we are today. And illegals come here. These are people that don't know what's going on in our criminal justice system when they're in, oh, I don't know, Guatemala or the Caribbean or wherever they're all coming from. They don't follow our news. They don't know all the details. But boy, when they get here, they find out real quickly, don't they? And they just fall right there in line. These kids were let go immediately, no bail. Alvin Bragg, the DA in New York, he's the one that brought that to Manhattan. And look who's paying the price, not Alvin. Oh, no. It's everybody else. I'm looking at a business trip that I'm going to have to do in the next 30 days or so in New York, in Manhattan. And I'm thinking about flying into and staying in New Jersey. And I love Manhattan. Some of my favorite places in the world to go to. The best barbecue in the United States is right off Times Square, Virgil's Barbecue. And then across the Brooklyn Bridge, you circle back around at the first exit and go down, and there's a restaurant that's been there for, gosh, I don't know how long. It's on a barge, permanent barge pulled up there under the bridge. My favorite, my wife's favorite restaurant in New York. I'm not going back there, and I haven't been there since all this mess happened. Oh, well, speaking of George Soros, now he's not just into defunding cops. A political action committee, financially backed by George, they've got a out-in-the-open plan to turn Texas blue this year, which means make another bunch of people Democrats in Texas. Other left-wing groups have expressed their interest in turning the state blue as well, and they're looking for the big bonus and the help they're getting, mass immigration. The name of this George Soros entity is Texas Majority PAC. It's run by consultants who work for Beto O'Rourke's failed gubernatorial campaign, and it's being partially funded by George Soros. 
George has a net worth of a paltry $6.7 billion, and he's one of the biggest donors to Democrats in the U.S., if not the biggest. According to records reviews by the Texas Tribune, the group raised two and a quarter million dollars since it started itself, period, after the 2022 midterm elections. $2.25 million. Now, you can do a lot. A lot of signs, a lot of ads, a lot of handshaking with a two and a quarter million dollars, can't you? In particular, through the group, Soros has thrown six-figure donations to Democrats in Dallas County, Cameron County, and Hidalgo County. We need millions of more dollars and hundreds of more full-time staff to do this. That's the group's deputy executive director, Catherine Fisher. Texas Majority PAC works with partners across the state to create the conditions that will flip the state blue if we can get it done. At the same time, the left-wing group Voto Latino has made it clear they're looking to turn Texas blue this year with mass immigration to the state. So a recent op-ed for Democracy Docket Voto Latino CEO Maria Teresa Kumar urges Democrats to take advantage of the nation's historically high legal immigration levels where more than a million legals are admitted every year, a million illegals are admitted every year in upcoming elections. So here's what they say. The U.S. Census Bureau recently confirmed the Latinos now outnumber non-Hispanic whites in Texas. It's a demographic shift that has been years in the making, and it has massive implications for the political future of the state that we're only beginning to see. To understand the political giant rising in Texas, it's important to know that the Latino population is disproportionately young. Nearly a quarter of young people under 18 in America are Latino, but the numbers are even starker in Texas. More than half of all Texans 18 years and younger are Latino. And more than 800,000 Texas Latinos have come of voting age since 2020. These young people are the future of the electorate in the state, and their potential political influence can't be underestimated, but it also can't be taken for granted. Don't need to say this, but in Texas, the state's foreign-born population is very important for Democrats, no doubt about it. In particular, Indian Americans increasingly make up a large portion of Texas's foreign-born population and are a huge voting bloc for Democrats akin to black Americans. Research from October 2020 found that more than 452,000 Indian Americans now live in Texas. Almost half a million. That's only second to California with more than 815,000 Indian Americans. Ahead of the 2020 presidential election, a whopping 65% of Indian Americans said they'd support then-Democrat candidate Biden against then-President Trump. Meanwhile, Trump garnered support from fewer than 3 in 10 Indian Americans. This month, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, he went to Mumbai, India. Probably a good thought for the Texas government to do this. He went to recruit more India-based businesses to Texas, which would bring even more immigration 
to the state from India. Over the last few years, Democrats have set a goal of helping a million legal immigrants gain naturalized American citizenship in time for this year's presidential election with the hopes of swinging the electorate in favor of Democrats. For years, research has consistently shown the larger a region's foreign-born population, the more likely that region is to vote for Democrats over Republicans. None of it, none of it is about what's best for the nation. It's about what's best for the Democrat Party. And oh, by the way, in case you didn't know it, we're talking about Indians who are American. Those Indians we're referencing are people from India. Like um, Vice President Kamala Harris. You may not know this. She's not American at all. Her mother immigrated. Well, she is American because she is a citizen. I, I just correct myself. But her mother is from India, and her father is from Jamaica. Bet she didn't know that. But there are an ever-increasing number and percentage of people coming to the United States from the nation of India. That's okay. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with any ethnicity or any nation of origin for people to come here if they do it legally. That's the kicker. Not come here and hope that the Democrat Party, next time they get control of both houses of Congress and the White House, they'll pass a law and give anybody they want full citizenship just because they happen to be here right now. And don't even think that's not what they're hoping for. Democrats will give citizenship to everybody they want to if they get that control. That should scare us all to death. Well, let me tell you what's up next. Steve Baker, his press conference from last Thursday. We talked about it ad nauseum here. He talked about it when he was with us, but it's a big deal and I want you to hear it. Top to bottom, that's up right after this. Welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order? Hi, can I get a... Uh... Can I get a... Okay, get in the McDonald's. Ooh, can I get a... Uh, can I get a... Yeah, can uh, I get a... Uh... 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 Go, Bubba, go! Uh... Pick me! No, pick me! Hey, can I get a... Ten-piece chicken McNuggets. And what sauce would you like with that? Uh... Des Moines Help Wanted.com salutes the employee of the month. The one employee you can't live without. The others, let's just call them Dave. Dave, we need to talk about your sick days. What seems to be the problem, Mr. Employee of the Month? Last week you were out all five days. I was sick. Thanks for checking in. You posted on social media that you were at a comedy club on Monday. Laughter is the best medicine. An outdoor barbecue on Tuesday. Feed a cold, starve a fever, or whichever one needs to be fed. That's the one I had. Okay, Wednesday you took a selfie, hashtag faking sick. That was supposed to say freaking sick. Thursday you were at an amusement 
amusement park. Somebody stole my phone. They stole your phone and uploaded photos of you at an amusement park. Yes, fake news. Friday, you tailgated in the employee parking lot. Friday's basically the weekend. Everyone knows that. If you don't mind hiring Dave's, go to the huge national job boards. That's probably what you'll get. But if you want more employees of the month, go where local job seekers find good local jobs. We don't discriminate against people named Dave. Dave is a common name, fun to say, and so we're using it as a catch-all for lackluster employees everywhere. Please don't write us to tell us you were insulted by the sad. That would be a real Dave move, Dave. Hey, what's the biggest number you can think of? A trillion, billion, zillion. That's pretty big. How about you? Ten. Okay. How about you? Infinity. Can you top that? Infinity and one. Actually, we are looking for infinity plus infinity. Sorry. What about infinity times infinity? <laughs> it's not complicated. Bigger is better. And AT&T has the nation's largest 4G network. Violence, screaming obscenities, heated arguments, angry crowds, roller derby? Nah. Election season. And your voice of calm is truthnewsnet.org. You know, I'm a sports fanatic. I, I, I've participated in some way in pretty much every major sport in my life. I used to when I was growing up in South Louisiana. For whatever reason or reasons, on Friday nights, they would televise live roller derby, women's roller derby competition. And it just intrigued me to watch the way those people do <laughs> out in the middle of uh, a bunch of people in that ring. And I never could quite get comfortable with the methodology that was used. But there was a lot of pushing and shoving and beating up on people and bloody noses and stuff. I guess maybe as a kid, that's why I liked it. Well, no roller derby went on last Thursday in downtown Dallas at Dealey Plaza. Steve Baker, now with the Blaze Network and here, he uh, was there with his bevy of lawyers talking about to the American people, letting everybody know what's happening between our U.S. Department of Justice and Steve Baker. And it's all coming after him for simply exercising his First Amendment rights as an investigative journalist. So I'm going to shut up and let you listen. This is from last Thursday in Dallas. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Ed Tarpley. I'm an attorney from Louisiana. I represented Stuart Rhodes in the first Oath Keeper trial, along with Lee Bright and Phil Linder from Dallas, Texas. Today, we're gathered here for our friend Steve Baker. Steve is a journalist. He is an investigative journalist with Blaze Media here in Dallas, Texas. But on the day of January 6th, Steve was a journalist, an independent journalist, videoing and reporting from Washington, D.C., inside the Capitol, and uh, he did a great job. Since that time, Steve has been uh, interviewed by uh, the FBI, uh, has received uh, communications from the Department of Justice about his possible arrest uh, in connection with uh, the uh, uh, journalism that he uh, conducted on the day of January 6th. Uh, earlier this week on Monday, uh, uh, several attorneys uh, issued a press conference on behalf of Steve Baker. Uh, I'm here today as one of those attorneys. We also have Matthew Saradini from North Carolina, who is uh, the longtime attorney for Steve Baker. We have Mr. James Lee Bright from Dallas, Texas. We have Mr. Uh, Brad Geyer from the state of New Jersey. Uh, and we are here today to uh, further amplify what we said on Monday in our press release. 
and that is that we are here for the freedom of the press and to protect the constitutional liberties that we have in this country. We're defending freedom of the speech, freedom of press, and for the ability of citizens to operate as journalists, to report the news, report events that are taking place in our country without fear of intimidation or coercion uh, by the federal government. And uh, I'm here to say to you that we proudly stand with Steve Baker to defend him, defend his rights as a citizen, uh, defend the freedom of the press, defend him as a journalist. Uh, and I'm honored to stand here with these uh, gentlemen today. At this time, I'm going to turn over the mic to Mr. Matthew Ceredini from the state of North Carolina, who will further comment on what we are doing here today for Steve Baker. Matthew. Uh, thank you, Ed. Uh, my name is Matthew Ceredini. I'm here uh, from Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, I have known Mr. Baker since uh, 2021, contacted me in the summertime. Uh, we have a mutual friend uh, who I've also done work for, and he asked me to represent Mr. Baker in an FBI interview. And normally what I would have said is uh, you shouldn't talk to the cops, but Mr. Uh, Baker has done a lot of journalism when one happened on January 6th that day. He had done a lot of blog posts, had posted a lot of videos, a lot of commentary. And we came to the decision that, well, this would be best just to get on the record and clarify exactly why you were there, what you saw, uh, and make sure that it, there, there's a, an official record with the FBI about this. So we consented to the interview. And then when I told the U.S. Attorney's Office that, yes, Mr. Baker was there in a capacity as a journalist, they then said, oh, well, we'll have to reschedule this because we need to see whether or not there are First Amendment implications. Clearly, there were. But they did come back and hold the interview. We interviewed with the FBI. And then from that point forward, we expected to hear more about possible charges that were going to be coming. But they kept getting delayed over and over and over again. Um, we were always compliant. We always uh, consented to whatever information that they wanted. We complied with their subpoenas. We did their interviews. And I would receive over the years many calls to say, OK, well, now's the time that we think that he uh, will be charged and he'll need to self-surrender. And when that day finally came or as we got closer to that day, they said, oh, well, Something came up. We're going to have to uh, postpone that. We'll let you know. Well, Mr. Baker has been living under this threat for the past over two and a half years now. We think it's unwarranted. He was there in the capacity as a journalist. He was there uh, exercising his First Amendment right. And we don't believe that the charges would be founded, uh, well-founded at all. Therefore, we're asking that the DOJ drop this investigation, stop sh overshadowing him, and uh, just allow him to be the journalist that he is. And I just want to say that I'm very proud to be here with Mr. Baker and the other attorneys uh, representing him. Um, and we hope that justice will prevail. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you for being here. My name's James Lee Bright. I'm a local criminal defense attorney. I had the pleasure of meeting Steve about a year and a half ago, just a bit over when I was able to and lucky enough to practice in DC for a while representing Stuart Rhodes for the Oath Keepers. Steve was a regular contributor and member of the press, reported fairly and evenly on our trials and in every other trial that I've seen him cover. 
I'm honored to be part of the group that will be defending Steve and standing here before you on his behalf. Steve, if you will please follow what he writes, follow his reporting, do so. It is enlightening and he is starting to show cracks in the armor and people do not like this. He has proven that at least two of the government witnesses in our trial committed perjury. It is video evidence. It has been proven. And there are people that do not like what Steve is showing you. And as part of his defense team, and honored to stand here before you today. We will stand by him to, sh to, to stand up for the First Amendment and his right as a journalist to continue these lines of investigation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lee. My name is Brad Geyer. I'm proud to call Steve Baker my friend. I think Steve Baker is one of the most effective and talented journalists that we have in America today. And it saddens me greatly that we're talking about, we're basically beseeching the United States Department of Justice not to charge this very talented journalist and let him continue in his work. We shouldn't be here having this press conference. We should be having a press conference of him receiving a Pulitzer Prize for the reporting that he's done. I represented Ken Harrelson in the Oath Keepers trial. Ken Harrelson is completely innocent. Thankfully, he's going to be released as early as this weekend. The reporting that Steve did, we as Oath Keepers Defense Counsel were so disturbed by what we saw regarding the testimony of Officer Harry Dunn and the testimony of Agent Lazarus that, frankly, I think I speak for the group, at least as it relates to Kenneth Harrelson, against whom the United States government's case was the weakest, that I believe that he would walk, he would not have been convicted had Agent Lazarus and Harry Dunn not provided false testimony. If the AUSAs had been provided that by the U.S. Capitol Police, they never would have put those witnesses on. If the AUSAs would have received that information and decided to put him on, they would have provided it to us. In any event, they would have provided it to us as Brady information. In all my interactions with the U.S. Attorney's Office and the Department of Justice in my January 6 cases, all the line assistants acted professionally and with a uh, uh, perfect ethical sensibility. My concerns relate to enforcement policy of the United States Department of Justice. Although he can't be here today, William Shipley is also on our combined defense. I am a proud former Fed of 21 years experience. I th I'm not sure if I have an extra year on Bill Shipley or he has an extra year on me, but what we are seeing as alumni of the Department of Justice, is we find profoundly troubling. We both, I believe, have deep concerns about the thrust of United States enforcement policy as it applies to this case and it applies to enforcement on behalf of the United States more generally. As I was preparing for today's press conference, I kind of lost track of the news, and I happen to notice that down here on the border, we have a, a, a growing dispute between a governor of the state of Texas 
There's other states that are joining, and it involves border enforcement. When you have millions of people crossing over the border, causing tens of thousands of violent crimes against Americans, how do you have the resources to go after a journalist? This is completely outrageous. And that's why we're here in Dealey Plaza. We are here in Dealey Plaza because what we're dealing with has enormous magnitude. Everybody needs to take a deep breath, step back to neutral corners, check out our enforcement policy. Is it really driven to protect the American people against, against actual threats? Is it really geared to creating the kind of American exceptionalism and uh, that, that uh, continually revives the American experience? And I would submit to you that it doesn't. And I call out to my former colleagues, career civil servants, ask around in the Department of Justice, ask around in the Inspectors General, ask around in the FBI. They will tell you that I've been a tireless supporter and advocate for career civil servants. And I'm calling out to you today. You need to help within your agencies to get these agencies rebalanced, to get them restored, to get them rehabilitated, to get them back within, uh, within norms that have been established over decades. We need your help. We all know that the vast majority of restoration that occurs is going to happen behind the scenes, behind closed doors. We need your help. I think we're going to get over 1,300 January 6 takedowns. Some involve voluntary surrender, not enough. We're talking about 20 and 30 agents deployed to a location to do a hard tactical arrest with sniper, on occasion, sniper teams, up-armored vehicles. We've heard multiple stories of a husband and wife walking out with hands up. The husband looks over at the wife and her chest is emblazoned by laser dots. This is the United States Department of Justice. This is the United States. Check out your rules of engagement. What is going on? Why are you pointing weapons at things that you don't intend to shoot? Enough. And today I stand before you to emphasize the fundamental importance of protecting our fundamental rights, particularly as it relates to investigative journalism, our freedom of speech, press, and the right to gather and disseminate information are the bedrock of a democratic society. However, we find ourselves at a crossroads where the allocation of resources towards certain areas of enforcement risks diverting attention from critical issues that pose significant threats to American prosperity. Steve Baker and his camera that captured the events of the day are not a threat to the United States. And his investigative journalism played a crucial role in holding those in power accountable. Journalists like Steve Baker are the watchdogs of our democracy, shining a light on corruption, injustices, and abuses of power. We sat there during the entire Oath Keeper trial. In my opinion, 95% of the germane, the reporting that was actually reporting on what was actually happening in the courtroom came from one guy. And as we celebrate the power of the press, we must also address the concerning trend of diverting resources towards cases that are not imminent threats to the nation. 
the, the events of January 6th undoubtedly deserved some kind of inquiry, deserved some kind of investigation. However, the emphasis placed in these cases came at the expense of other pressing issues. Even the former Attorney General, William Barr, has pointed out that if the same level of attention was given to January 6th, was extended to other areas of crime, our nation would be the safest in the world. But it's clearly not now. I am here not necessarily just for me today. I am here for the other independent journalists that were there on January 6th doing their job, that were not there to riot, that were not there to inflict harm on law enforcement or do property damage or to walk around the building and chanting and making even their voices heard. But for those guys who have been charged and convicted and some imprisoned for the very activities that I did that day, unfortunately for those guys, they did not have behind them a, a team that has come and rallied behind me of that quality. Unfortunately, they have not had as well a news organization of the size and with the bullhorn uh, voice of Blaze Media to back them up. And so I'm here for them today, first and foremost. I want to talk about, first of all, the difference in journalism today and what it was and what they now expect it to be and the way that the, the, the government still portrays it in trial is this arcane beast that you have to work for some hallowed organization like the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Associated Press or the UPI or CNN or MSNBC or you're not qualified as a journalist. You have to have a specific license or a designation or a certificate or a badge or a press pass of some sort in order for your voice to be valid. But see, that's the old world as it is today. When you're somebody like myself, who three years ago had a Facebook following of 40,000 followers, that's larger, you understand, than most small town newspapers. As a matter of fact, in those days before Facebook started um, suppressing speech and, and throttling our reach because of the COVID uh, restrictions that were happening at the time, my articles to 40,000 subscribers we're seen by average of 150,000 people, sometimes over a million, depending upon whether they went viral or not. That's the new media. That's where we're at today. So you can't come to us, Department of Justice. You can't come to me, FBI. You can't come to me, assistant U.S. attorney, and look at me in a trial and de denigrate me the way that you did to J.D. Rivera from Pensacola, or the way you denigrated Stephen Horn from Raleigh, North Carolina in their trials and belittled them for their journalistic efforts and their voice for what they did, because it's not the same anymore. You've got this old, archaic view, and we're going to stop that from this point forward, going forward, if you decide to come against me in court. We're going to put that back on you and we're going to educate you on what the new media is. Because while we're growing and our voices are growing and millions of people are following our blogs and our substacks and our locals, et cetera, et cetera, Washington Post is laying people off by the hundreds. The old media is dying. We're the new voice. It looks different, sounds different. You may not like what we have to say, but 
we still have the First Amendment to protect us. Real quickly, I just want to go back to a couple of these guys I've mentioned already. I want to talk about J.D. Rivera from Pensacola. He was the first person in the panhandle of Florida to, to be arrested for uh, January 6th crimes. He had over 20 agents show up at his doorstep early in the morning in a raid and put the red dots on his family, his children, his wife, and visiting family as well that were staying there with him. What was his crime? He was a professional, or is, a professional videographer, photojournalist, who showed up at the Capitol that day with his big professional gear, and then he followed the story where the story went. When the story went through a broken window, he and another journalist who submitted his story to the New Yorker by the name of Luke Mogelson, they went through the same broken window. Luke went through with his cell phone. In fact, he famously said in the video with the videos he captured inside the Senate of the QAnon shaman praying and singing and chanting in the, the Senate chamber, he said, I used my cell phone as a journalist notebook. JD was there with his big professional gear, contracted by a television station out of Mobile, Alabama. JD didn't chant. He didn't say USA, USA. He didn't say stop the steal. He didn't say whose house, our house. No chance whatsoever. And he and Luke basically paralleled each other through the Capitol that day. Luke submitted his story to the New Yorker entitled Among the Insurrectionists. Well, that was his get out of jail free card. JD driving home on the 7th of January, talking to the television station. They're excited. You got all this film. You were there. You went inside. They, they can't wait to take this film that he has and put it on the air. J.D. gets home, never hears from the television station again. And as I've mentioned before, these individuals with long rifles, red dots, show up from the government, these government agencies, and they arrest him and they take him away. They charge him not with felonies, not with violent insurrection. They charge him with a glorified trespassing charge. And he gets four misdemeanors. He says, well, if you're not going to charge Luke Mogelson, then I'm going to go to trial and I'm going to let my voice be heard and I'm going to defend myself. This is selective prosecution at its best. And that's what I'm going to do. And he went to trial. He was convicted. Months later, he was sentenced to eight months in prison. Rather than sending him to a minimum security camp just outside of his home in Pensacola where his family could visit him. They sent him to a medium security facility in Georgia where the first thing they did is they threw this misdemeanor defendant journalist into uh, solitary confinement for two months. He got four days of sunshine in his first two months in prison, four days. When he was released into the general population, he then had to convince the violent felons who were there, the professional criminals, that he was only a misdemeanor defendant because they said to him, you're lying. Uh, misdemeanor defendants don't come to this jail. They don't send them to the prison. We know we're, we're, we're pros. This is what we do for a living. We, you don't misdemeanor defendants only. Well, you are if you're a January 6th defendant. That's how you're treated. Thankfully, J.D.'s back home with his family now. He served his time. Stephen Horn, young independent journalist, was only 22 years old on January 6th. He had been acquiring and accumulating press passes and badges for events he had been covering all the way back to when he was 16 years old. 
and I've seen his dossier. I've seen the motions that his his uh, attorneys filed on a selective prosecution basis to show the court that he had a history of doing journalism and that that was why he was there that day. But here's what happened. When they filed that motion, the judge, a Trump supported uh, Trump appointed judge, by the way, Judge Kelly, denied him and his defense team the right to show his history of journalism to that jury was not allowed to show him those press badges that he had accumulated since he was 16 years old. And instead, those prosecutors belittled him, denigrated him, and absolutely destroyed any possibility of the jury, of D.C. jury, even considering the, the notion that he might be a legitimate journalist. You know what his biggest mistake was that day? In order to blend in with the crowd at one point, one time, all day long, captured on his own camera, he said three deadly words. He said, USA, USA, USA. And for that reason right there and that reason alone, he was not granted the <laughs> designation of being a journalist. He was a participant in the riot as a result of that. And that's the guys that we're here to talk about today, not just myself. My case has been being investigated, we know, for at least two and a half years. And we've heard the story. You've seen the press release. The guys have talked about it. I don't need to review any more of that. I just want to say this in closing, is that we're going to continue doing the work, even if the Department of Justice decides to move forward, finally, then I'm not going to stop working. I'm not going to stop telling the stories that we're telling. I'm not going to stop telling the stories about January 6th. I'm not going to start stop talking about the stories we know about the malfeasance coming out of the Department of Justice. I'm not going to stop talking about the stories and stop revealing the information that we have, particularly related to the case that three of these four gentlemen participated in, um, a year and a quarter ago, we have the information that shows that the Oath Keepers were framed. We know who the Star Chamber is. We know who sat on it. And we have more blockbuster information, particularly as it relates to Special Agent David Lazarus of the United States Capitol Police and former Officer Harry Dunn of the United States Capitol Police, now congressional candidate and the fact that these two men we know now should never have been allowed in that courtroom. First of all, they should not have been members of the Capitol Police or officers of the Capitol Police on January 6, 2021 because of disciplinary actions that they had against them years ago that were suppressed, hidden, not given to the attorneys in discovery through Brady violations by the Department of Justice. I know Brad's a little bit nicer to him than I am. Where is he? There he is. But we're going to be revealing these stories, these documents, and this information of why not only should those officers not even been officers on the force at that time, they should never have been allowed to testify. And at the very least, these guys behind me should have had that information so that they could have impeached those testimonies when they gave them in that trial. So we're not going to stop. Thank you guys so much for your time and, uh, and listening to what we have to say today. 
my last message is directly to the Department of Justice. Let me do my job if you really believe in justice. If you really believe in the truth, leave me alone. If not, if this is the fight you want, then let's rumble. Let's rumble. Our own Steve Baker, you heard that with that fleet of lawyers that have voluntarily, each one of them, and these are people that know what the heck they're doing. They've been down this road in this fight coming from January 6th and all the lies that the left have perpetrated upon the entire nation and the world. It's amazing almost every day we hear some new bit of news that just flies in the face of the narrative that's been put out there, beginning with Nancy Pelosi, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi's star committee that she put together, had two rhino Republicans on it. The Republicans had no access to evidence. They couldn't see any of the contact information with any of the witnesses. They couldn't call witnesses. They couldn't cross-examine any witness. All they could do was sit there and listen like a couple of uh, fence monkeys. It was a sham. The whole thing was a sham. And then we find out just a couple of weeks ago, we carried it here. 117 pages of evidence from that hearing. That evidence belongs to the United States of America Congress, the House of Representatives. Well, who's the House of Representatives now? Speaker McCarthy. But before him, it was Kevin McCarthy. That day, January 6th, Kevin McCarthy wasn't Speaker of the House, but you know what happened last year Nancy Pelosi lost her spot as the speaker. Kevin got it back two years ago, I'm sorry. And the first thing he did was make it known he sent a letter, formal letter, to the head of that committee that put that committee together and said, preserve everything you have in evidence, in writing, testimony, everything. Preserve it. We find out about three weeks ago, 117 pages of critical evidence from that committee. They encrypted it, they being the Democrats. They encrypted it, and then they deleted it, hoping to keep it from ever seeing a ray of sunshine. You know, that thing called the truth. However, Speaker Mike Johnson... He got those 117 pages, but they're still encrypted, and they are working diligently with some IT gurus to get that changed so that that content will come out. Wow. Thank you for listening to that, what you just heard. It kind of puts a lot of meat on the bone of all the things you hear when Steve Baker comes here every Tuesday and shares that second hour, part of the second hour with us here at TNN Live. We thank him for that. And I don't think that anybody that heard that interview, and by the way, if you didn't know this, every time Steve comes here, we have a screen in our studio in the monitor system, and it shows the IP addresses and the state and the country, anybody that's logged in listening to the show. And every time he comes, there's at least two 
computers, listening, monitoring this show when Steve Baker's here from CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. Several times there have been three. Why are they after him? I don't need to give you an answer. You know what it is. They don't want him telling the truth. They don't want the truth to be known. I've seen enough video evidence for myself, and unfortunately much of it we can't bring to you here for two reasons. Number one, this is an audio-only show. And number two is, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I have prohibitions from several different authorities that prevent us from doing that. And that's part of this whole thing, the First Amendment thing, and the January 6th thing that just frosts me all the way to the bone. We, as the American people, own our government. They work for us. We should have the authority to say, listen, we want everything released to the general public. Everything. But they don't care. They don't care. Talk about the threats they make about what Donald Trump would do if he's re-elected. He's going to destroy our democracy. They already have. Donald Trump never did one thing in his presidency, not one thing that could be considered anti-democratic. Every day, Joe Biden himself and his minions from top to bottom are destroying laws, ignoring them, trampling on them with impunity. That, my friends, is destruction of democracy. You know why? In a democracy, the government representing the people, craft all the laws, and the government enforces all the laws that are broken against those who broke them. Joe Biden doesn't do that. Direct result, look at the southern border. Look at the lawlessness. Look at the two New York cops that were beaten senseless by five teenage illegal immigrants that don't give a rip about the law. Look at what has happened in those 300 riots that happened the summer of the George Floyd incident across the nation since then. Look at all that. We got a story coming up about, in fact, you'll hear it, about pro-life people that are going to jail. And you're actually going to hear the content of the incident that they used to send them to jail, and you know why they're going to jail? Just because they're pro-life. Our government is slipping to the edge, and if Joe Biden or any other Democrat repeats, if Joe does, or another Democrat besides Joe comes to this White House for four more years, democracy as we know it is gone. It'd take a long, long time, much longer than that, Dan, for that to be kicked to the curb, democracy. Look at what Joe Biden and his minions have done in three years. Think about that during this break. Northern Tool and Equipment. My girlfriend has given me a pet name. I'm afraid to ask. Snuggle Muffin. No, it isn't. And she uses it in public. Okay, so give your girlfriend a pet name she'll hate, like uh, Thunder Chunky. I couldn't do that. I see. Too harsh for snuggle muffin. Okay. Drown her out with a 200 mile per hour cordless leaf blower. Got it. Here she comes. Hey, snuggle muffin. 
wings. Snuggle. Snuggle. I am so out of here. Wait. Come back, Thunder Chunky. There's no problem a little horsepower can't solve. Northern Tool and Equipment. Lowe's knows you're a craftsman guy. You have a lot of tools. Tools for everything you've done around the house. But there's the moment you realize your new project means new tools. Yes. When tool guys need new tools, they start with Lowe's. The new home of Craftsman. You're driven all night. Everyone has one. The guy that's fun to be around, but he's dangerous to be around. You've got to keep him away from your things, like your tools, your gadgets, and your girlfriend. So before you get your juvenile mate around, get your lips around a Dare Ice Coffee. The real Arabica and Robusta Coffee Kick will tell you what to do. Hire a jumping castle. Hours of fun for kids of all ages. A Dare Iced Coffee Fix will fix it. just busy, chock full of very important items. We'll get to those pro-life people that are headed to jail, including one 80-plus-year-old grandma in just a minute. This just came in. Capitol Police, we're told, will not bring charges after two men recorded themselves having sex in a Senate office building at the U.S. Capitol. For now, they say, we are closing the investigation into the facts and circumstances surrounding a sex video that was recorded inside the Hart Senate office building the morning of Wednesday, December 13. After consulting with federal and local prosecutors as well as doing a comprehensive investigation and review of possible charges, it was determined that, despite a likely violation of congressional policy, There is currently no evidence that a crime was committed. So in other words, anybody, anybody can go to the U.S. Capitol and any two people can climb up on a table in one of the offices or the meeting rooms in the U.S. Capitol and have sex and film it and it's porn. Anybody can do that and not get busted. They said, although the hearing room wasn't open to the public that day, the congressional staffer involved had access to the room. The two people of interest were not cooperative, nor were the elements of any of the possible crimes met. So in other words, it was legal. How about that? Now, if I was so minded, I would probably be one person that would probably do something or initiate something to be done on the grounds of the Capitol, inside the U.S. Capitol. Similar. I, I, I could never go down that road. But similar, some egregious thing. And you know what would happen to me if I did? They'd put me under the jail. But these two guys, two gay guys doing a gay porno of having sex in a Senate building hearing room, 
and it's not breaking the law? Oh my gosh. What are we coming to? What is this world coming to? I don't think we can go too much further before we slip over into the abyss. What about you? So some peaceful, and they were very peaceful. I saw the video of this. Some people sitting in a hallway outside of an abortion clinic. They went there to impress people that were coming in to have an abortion. They didn't confront anybody. They sat there, they prayed, and they sang. Listen to this whole story. President Biden's Department of Justice charged six pro-life activists for a peaceful protest outside a Tennessee abortion facility in 2021. Watch this. This is the video of that protest that brought these charges. So they're singing to God there, expressing their faith outside the clinic in the hallway. And now they could face 11 years in prison for that, what you are watching. They were found guilty yesterday of conspiracy against rights and violating the freedom of access to clinic entrances. Look at this, the pro-Palestinian protesters, the ones who ripped down a fence that reinforced the barrier outside the White House and hurled water bottles and sticks at officers, not a single arrest. And meanwhile, the protesters who swarmed the home of Supreme Court justices last year, which is a crime, the Washington Post even says that, zero arrest. Lily, I cannot believe this, the disproportionate attacks on the pro-life community, yes. two of whom are women in their 70s, Ugh. one who is sick and not in good health. Here's what's really alarming, because this is why Trust in the legal system and even our Supreme Court is at an all-time low since 1973. That in itself puts the democracy and integrity of who we are at risk. We have to make decisions, and you are lawyers here, you know this, based on legal principle and not in personal bias or political affiliation. So this double standard of justice and what we're seeing against these you know, law-abiding Christians that are peacefully singing songs and praising and worshiping versus others that are more violent that have no consequence is the very reason why that trust is so low. And meanwhile, most attacks on this issue of life have been against churches, against pro-life facilities. But listen to your federal government. This is why they aren't able to prosecute those cases. Since the uh, Dobbs Act decision probably in the neighborhood of 70% of our abortion-related uh, violence cases or threats cases are cases of violence or threats against pro-life. So where the victims are, are pro-life organizations. And we apply the law equally. Um, I will say you're quite right. There are many more prosecutions with respect uh, to the um, um, blocking of the, uh, um, of the abortion centers. But that is generally because they are; those actions are taken in, uh, with photography at the time, um, uh, during the daylight, and uh, seeing the person who did it is uh, quite easy. Um, the, those who are attacking the pregnancy resources centers, uh, which is a, a horrid thing to do, are doing this at night um, in the dark. Wait a minute. What? Wait, 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 wait. Is he saying that the daylight versus the nighttime light <laughs> 
is why you can get some of these things adjudicated. Yeah. Fact check true. I mean, that, yes. that is, first of all, who's walking around <laughs> protesting in, in pitch darkness? No yeah. one. Their street lights on? I mean, I, how, could you, how could you read their signs at night if yeah. it were pitch black out? Mm. I mean, that made no sense. That's insulting. It is. Like, like resign. Yeah. Okay, you're the attorney general of the United States of America, and you want us to believe? No, we can't catch them. Okay, they can catch anybody. Dark they, out. they can catch anybody they want if the motivation is there to catch them. The idea that, oh, well, this was photographed. Guess what we did on the night they attacked the White House? We watched videos of it. We watched photos of it. With none of this is stuff, None of this is happening in Amish country. It's happening where people utilize technology. That's an insult. But it's so transparent. And this is why we're at a dangerous point in our country. People do not honestly believe we're seeing an equal application of the law. Well, we're people, not. No, one, no serious person believes we are. And that's dangerous, right. man. Emily, so you go after this, the 70-year-old pro-life women, the people singing to Christ. Uh, they, you go after them. But none of the Supreme Court protesters, Washington Post, yes, Experts say protests at SCOTUS Justice Homes appear to be illegal. The DNC protests where the Capitol Police said people were pepper sprayed, law enforcement officers punched. But you can't prosecute people there. This is absolutely sickening. I, I want to make sure a couple things that get said that the viewers can take away. Number one, the reason that they're facing 11 years in prison is because that's a federal conspiracy against rights charge. And this is where prosecutorial discretion comes into play, to your point. Mm -hmm. It is what we elect district attorneys, and we also pay the salaries of federal prosecutors to ensure not only that they apply the law equally, but that they do so with their discretion. So you are correct that seeing people, what looks to be a peaceful assembly singing hymns at the age of 70, that that would be considered a conspiracy against rights. A woman testified that she came to get an abortion that day. She left because of the protesters. That testimony is why, in part, they were convicted and why the prosecutors charged that. That is unacceptable patently. And for the attorney general to come in and admit, or Christopher Ray admits, 70% of violent threats and crimes in the abortion realm are against pro-lifers, and yet the vast majority are prosecuted by those who are pro-life. Mm -hmm. This is unacceptable in this day and age. It is patently, it is Biden's America, and we're supposed to sit and take it sitting down? 11 years for these people, for sitting yep. in the hallway. This is it's a travesty. It's tyranny of the minority. It again is. Again and again and it again. It is. And the FACE Act had only been used 12 times before the Biden administration came along. Right. Mark Halk, remember that guy raided with guns at his home in front of his kids? Thankfully, we still have juries. He was found innocent. This is crazy, folks. If this does not illustrate authoritarian rule by a government, there is no such thing. 70% of the violence perpetrated in the right for life conversation, 70% of that violence is against pro-life individuals. But they don't prosecute that, hardly at all. The other way, here's an example. One of those women, a grandmother in her 80s, she faces 11 years in prison. Now, hopefully, hopefully, Righteousness will prevail, and they won't send her to prison. But don't bet on it. This is the Biden administration. If you blink against anything, just blink, or you make a funny face about abortion, they'll come do something to you. They'll arrest you. Middle of the night, early in the morning, a raid on your house, helicopters flying over. That stuff is happening almost every week against 
conservatives. But remember, Christopher Ray was on Capitol Hill yesterday testifying the number one threat in the United States of America is domestic terrorism, and that's coming from white supremacists. White supremacists. And you know when they give an example of the white supremacy that is so prevalent? They give two examples. They did this last week in a speech. Two examples of white supremacy. One, January 6th. Come on now. January 6th? There was no terror going on there. They didn't beat up any cops. No guns around. There was one, I believe, that somebody got caught with, but it wasn't used. And as a matter of fact, for the first three quarters of that stuff that happened at the Capitol, none of the Capitol police that were there to warn were armed. They later went quickly and took up arms. But even then, there was no violence whatsoever with the exception of the small group of bad people that were there to do that. But for Merrick Garland, the Department of Justice, the FBI, that doesn't matter. If you were there, if you were on the scene, they've come after you. And they're, if they haven't got you or found you yet, and I'm talking to probably one of my good friends that listens to this show every day that was there, be careful. They have your identity. You know that. They have everybody that was there, that facial recognition, mim- just amazing software program the Department of Justice has. They know everybody that was there. They first started saying, oh, only if you committed violent acts. <laughs> They're way down the road from that. Little interesting news came in this morning. The White House is continuing to stonewall Republicans who are probing Joe Biden's alleged corrupt activities. Now, guess what they're doing now? They refuse to give the Republicans in the House a transcript of a speech in which Joe Biden, when he was vice president, called for the firing of that Ukrainian prosecutor that's been at the middle of all of this Biden family syndicate stuff. His name is Victor Shokin. He was the state prosecutor for the country of Ukraine. And he allegedly is an evil guy, although Barack Obama made it very clear and publicly determined that the Ukrainian all of the corruption there in the financial system did not apply to this prosecutor because he was straight. He didn't do anything. Not according to Joe. On Wednesday last week, the House Oversight Committee said the administration has refused to provide the requested drafts of then-Vice President Biden's December 9, 2015 speech to the Ukrainian RADA which is a newspaper, where he called for Prosecutor General Victor Shokin to be fired. Shokin at the time was probing, guess what? The Ukrainian energy company that employed Hunter Biden. Hunter was on the board. Of course, that's Burisma. We all know that now. And Hunter was on that board despite any evidence 
that he had any experience in the oil and gas industry, a position that has drawn much scrutiny, of course, including by GOP lawmakers who are trying their best to get to the bottom of the Biden family's shady foreign business deals. Biden later bragged about his using his clout to get Victor Shokin fired. Now, Shokin was proven, according to Barack Obama, the president then, that he was good. He didn't do anything wrong. But here's what Biden said after he did the deal and got Shokin fired. He bragged about it. We've had it on video. You've seen it ad nauseum. He said, I'm leaving. He, this is what he told these people. He said he told them. I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. The money was a $1 billion guaranteed loan by the United States. We were guaranteeing a loan for Ukraine, $1 billion. Joe continued, well, son of a bee, he got fired. Biden was actually bragging about what he did. And now the White House is refusing to hand over early drafts of that speech where he called for the firing of Victor Shokin. In that speech, then-Vice President Biden called for the firing of that prosecutor. According to public reporting, then-Vice President Biden called an audible and changed U.S. policy toward Ukraine to benefit his baby boy. Biden later bragged about withholding that loan guarantee if Ukraine did not fire the prosecutor. Chairman Comer requested these documents over five months ago. But the White House has refused to allow NARA to release them to Congress. Within a week of getting that request, NARA indicated it was able to provide the White House with the full set of documents covering the request for all drafts of then-Vice President Biden's speech. However, under federal law, NARA must receive White House approval before they release the documents. For over five months, the White House has refused to authorize the release. I wonder why. What's in it? House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer, Republican from Kentucky. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan, Republican from Ohio. House Ways and Means Committee Chair Jason Smith, Republican from Missouri, sent a letter to White House Counsel Edward Siskel calling for the immediate authorization of the National Archives and Records Administration, that's NARA, you know that, to release the drafts. For more than five months, the White House has declined to authorize production of these draft speeches to the Oversight Committee or even to assert some valid privilege that gives them the right to not show them. A delay like this in processing a discreet and limited category of documents, it's unacceptable, and it appears to show an attempt to obstruct the committee's legitimate investigation. These dilatory tactics must stop, and the White House must permit NARA to release these documents. If the White House does not do so, the Oversight Committee will consider the use of compulsory process to require the White House's production of the speeches. But I can tell you, this is GOP Chairman Comer, but I can tell you, you cannot name me a single democracy in the world where the cancer of corruption like this is prevalent. You cannot name me one. They are thoroughly inconsistent. 
And it's not enough to set up a new anti-corruption bureau and establish a special prosecutor fighting corruption. The Office of General Prosecutor desperately needs reform. The judiciary should be overhauled. The energy sector needs to be competitive, ruled by market principles, not sweetheart deals. It's not enough to push through laws to increase transparency with regard to official sources of income. Senior elected officials have to remove all conflicts between their business interests and their government responsibilities. Every other democracy on the globe, every other one, that system pertains to. Wow, you want to pat that person on the back for saying all that, right? You know who said it? Joe Biden. In that speech, that was part of the speech. And that's in the speech, of of course, is where he went after Victor Shokin. What's good for the goose, in this case, is not good for the gander. I think we can all agree on on that. You remember James O'Keefe? He's the founder now of O'Keefe Media, has confirmed he plans to release a report that his friends say will put him in the bullseye and he may get killed for doing so. In a long tweet that he published on Tuesday, he seemed to basically say that he's made peace with this possibility and he's going ahead with the story. The tweet begins with him saying he's lived a good life, but warning that he doesn't know what comes next, that he only knows there's extreme risk doing what he does. He said this, at age 39, I've lived a good life. Whether it's complete or not is not up to me. What happens next? I don't know. If there's more to come, so be it. I've learned the pursuit of truth requires extreme risk while operating without a safety net. I've experienced so much. I've lived 10 lives compressed into a fraction of one. That's all that a man can hope for. Meteoric highs, extreme lows, and near-death experiences, jail, jury trials, travels to every state dozens of times, adventures, travails, failures, betrayals, and loves lost and gained, repeated valleys, moving and climbing mountains, enduring multiple rebirths and renewals. That post has inspired his supporters to shower him with support on the social media platform. You can imagine that. I've received love from a balanced family with honest parents and sincere grandparents who raised me to have a maniacally driven work ethic, all while believing in the best in people, he says. From my vantage point, the last thing on is on the verge of extinction unless things fundamentally change. He talks about his transition from Project Veritas, his previous company. I built a good organization from nothing, which did only good things. I'm taking lessons from the first company, building a better one from nothing, which I know will do more extraordinary things. He then moves on to talk about challenging the Leviathan. And in the Bible, the Leviathan is an extremely powerful sea creature. James said this, Leviathan doesn't like being challenged, but as nearly as impossible as that is, the enemy and its injustice is no longer what bothers me. An enemy can't betray you. Only you people think are good can do that. And he wasn't done. 
It has been an indescribable hell on earth for me to witness people go against everything they claim to believe in. Everything good and right in service to their love of money and power, he said. I've witnessed envy destroy people whose hearts I thought I knew. I've seen an unhealthy obsession with comfort and safety from countless others. These weaknesses stand between us and what we're up against. And finally, after he got it all out of the way, O'Keefe addresses the mysterious report which his friends seem to believe might get him killed. He said, I'm not suicidal, but I'm also not afraid to die. Now I'm indifferent to the outcome and frankly numb to the consequences of telling the truth. I've adapted to faith over fear. The mission is to discover other people whose principles are not for sale, who will do the right thing rather than talk about doing the right thing. I'm tired of seeing tens of thousands of people sliding into my DMs, complaining to my team about how bad things are, and then they make excuses or do nothing. I'm tired, boss, he said, so here I stand. I can do no other. As has been said, if they're going to kill me, they're going to kill me. Let's do this. Let's get 2024 started. Let's inspire others to be brave. Let's raise the stakes. Let's expose them all. And he signed it, in truth, James. And by the way, as of 10 a.m. this morning, he's not released the report that his friends say might get him killed. Wow, that's a big one, isn't it? That's a tough one to handle. I uh, I just don't get that, but I'm going to pray for the guy. I don't think anybody should be going with stuff like that. Do you? I just can't justify it. Well, we've got some other things. We could keep going for another hour today very easily. They had a big vote yesterday in the House of Representatives. And in that vote, there was a very surprise in the vote that came out. This particular issue, when it was voted on, there are 435 members of the U.S. House of Representatives, 435, and they vote on everything. All the issues that come up, each of the one, the 435, they have a vote. They cast that vote if they're in the chamber. Sometimes they're not, sometimes they're out of town or sick. You know how that goes. Well, yesterday on this particular issue, when it came time for a vote from the full house, everybody voted, and there were only two votes against it. The bill was introduced, yeah, this is pretty strange. The bill was introduced by Republican Pennsylvania Representative Tom McClintock, And this bill would mandate that, and I'm going to quote, any alien who carried out, participated in, planned, financed, afforded material support to, or otherwise facilitated any of the attacks against Israel initiated by Hamas starting October 7th, 2023, is inadmissible to the United States. That's according to its text. Palestinian terrorists murdered approximately 1,200 people October 7th last year, raped numerous women, took hundreds of hostages, cut babies' heads off of. Democrat Representative Della Ramirez of Illinois was the only lawmaker to vote present. But as I told you, 
There were two that voted against it. Who do you think it was? Democrat representatives Corey Bush of Missouri and Rashida Tlaib of Michigan. Now, what is this all about? There is a move to bring, bring, bring to the United States some of the disenfranchised Hamas individuals to the United States to live. The government, our government to do that. These two voted, let them come on in. It's okay with us. That tells you a lot, doesn't it? Tells me a lot, especially about those two. Anyway, I couldn't get away from this one thing today. You know, I I talked to you at nauseum several weeks ago, and I've been saying this for a long time. There's no way Joe Biden's going to make it to the November election this year. I don't see how it's possible. We watched his cognitive decline just speed up, really. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. I I could play you probably 20 minutes nonstop of his oral gaffes. I mean, really stupid stuff, really plain stuff that could only be attributed to the guy's got problems in his communication skills now. It's not a it's not a denigration of the man, Joe Biden. Look, I'm 70. How long is it going to be before I start kind of losing a step every now and then? Some people, my kids especially, they say I already have. In fact, they tell me that my cheese has slipped off the cracker. But who could possibly replace Joe Biden? Kamala Harris, the obvious odds-on choice. But the Democrat Party, they're not going to put her up. If Joe decides not to run, they're going to find some way to make her feel warm and fuzzy. I even see a scenario where maybe they would let her, you know, Joe step down maybe this summer coming up before the the, uh, Democrat National Committee convention. It's going to be held in Chicago. Kamala gets to be named the replacement, takes the oath of office to be the first woman president in the United States. She serves there for four months, and she helps the Democrat Party nominee. Glenn Beck came up with a very familiar suggestion about who that probably is going to be. May I give you a theory on something quickly? There's no way Joe Biden can win. He's got a 37% approval rating. Why did they pick him in the first place? Because he was hidden, and I believe because he was corrupt. He was old, senile, and corrupt. So they knew when they were ready to dispose of him, they could just dispose of him. Um, Now he's got a 37% approval rating. They can't let this happen. Who's really running the White House? Who's the only president that didn't move away from Washington after his term ended? Barack Obama. I think that Barack Obama uh, and his people, his group, they're this is a puppet show we're watching, and they're having him do all of the really hard, destructive things. So one term, he's got all that, and then we look for a new one if you can't find one. And I know everybody says that she doesn't want it, but I don't mm-hmm. think that matters. Michelle Obama. That, my friends, you've heard it come from me for months. I still, 
even more now than before, I still think that's the plan. Now, for a lot of reasons and a lot of different things that might come up between now and then, it may not work out that way. But I believe that's what's in the back of the leadership of the Democrat Party's mind. On the way out today, you know, you heard that debate going on between DeSantis and Governor of, of uh, California. You heard it. You heard what everybody was saying, the allegations about who's leaving which state going where. Officially now, over a million people have fled California in the last few years for red states where there is less regulation, taxation, government tyranny, crushing the masses. This exodus has reportedly sped up after the pandemic, which is unsurprising considering that Governor Gavin Newsom from California, remember all of his heavy-handed COVID mandates he put on the state? Many people don't want to suffer through that again. The Census Bureau publishes annual numbers on each state's net domestic migration. That is, how many of their residents move to a given state minus the number who move from that state to somewhere else in the U.S. The second quarter of 2020 was the first quarter to take place entirely after COVID-19. It was known after it was known to be here on our shores. The most recent numbers available From July 1, 2023, looking at net domestic migration over the 13-quarter span yields some crazy results. No one should be shocked that Florida came out way on top. And guess who's on the bottom? (laughs) Da-da-da-da! California. And there you have it, folks. Gavin Newsom. He's no longer just wrong every once in a while. He's an habitual liar. You guys have a great rest of the day. Thanks for being here today. Don't forget, download today's show. It includes a bunch of really good information. Share it with friends and point them to how to get here to listen live to TNN Live. We will see you tomorrow, tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Central Time. See you then. 